take humans and do the same thing now, you know, to rewire our beehive, our habitat, and completely transform it and then drop these new people into it. People who are social social beings, I mean, we're wired to be incredibly social and interactive, and you drop us all into this new environment that suppresses all of that systematically. And you're like, yeah, we do we have depression? Yeah, do we have neuroticism? Yeah, do we have lots of anxiety? Yeah. What causes it? Welcome to the third episode of the Ancient Wisdom Project podcast. In this episode, I interview Chuck Marone, the founder of the nonprofit Strong Towns, an organization dedicated to making our towns and communities financially strong and resilient. You may be wondering why I'm interviewing a guy whose goal is to make sure our towns and cities don't go bankrupt. Like most contrarian thinkers I know, Chuck weaves in a lot of different ideas from different domains to make his point. One of these ideas is that the way we develop towns and cities in modernity is fundamentally flawed and that we can actually learn quite a bit about how we should build our towns and cities from ancient civilizations. The idea that ancient practices still have something to teach us is, of course, something I strongly believe in. This is a long episode, about an hour and a half, but you're going to learn a lot of interesting stuff. You'll learn why our towns and cities are likely to fail despite the best of intentions, why the design of modern towns and cities might be making us depressed and anxious. You'll also learn about Chuck's advice for choosing a place to live that is more conducive to being fully human. I really enjoyed my conversation with Chuck, and I know you'll get a lot out of this episode. Enjoy. All right. Well, today I'd like to introduce Chuck Marone, the founder of Strong Towns, a nonprofit dedicated to making communities financially strong and more resilient. He's also the author of this great book, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, a book that really resonated with me because of its strong parallels to my own ancient wisdom project, especially on the ideas of using what is time-tested uh, as a way to cultivate a good and meaningful life in a modern world. So Chuck, thanks for coming on the show. Gosh, thanks for having me. You know, when I when I got the invite and you, you said what your podcast is all about, I'm like, hey, I got to check that out. That sounds like a lot of fun. So I'm excited to be here. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. I uh, find that, you know, so, some people go, oh, ancient ancient wisdom, like that has no relevance today. But I, I think you're one of these people that uh, – has over time come to find the value of it, um, especially in the in the field of work you're doing, which is uh, develop you know development and planning and in, in, in a old but new way. There's no doubt. I did not start here, and um, <laughs> you know I, I kind of have uh, let's just say you know been been humbled too many times to uh, to not to not respect the fact that there's more I don't know than I do and uh, yeah so it, I think the idea of there being ancient wisdom is something that once you recognize it becomes so obvious you're you're just embarrassed that you never uh, you never grasped it and it changes your life forever absolutely absolutely so to kick off 
I, I'm not sure if any of our listeners or readers are are familiar with uh, the strong towns and what your what you and your organization does. So, can you tell us a little bit about the strong towns philosophy and what problem it's trying to solve? Absolutely. Um, we recognize that the way we develop our cities today, the way we actually physically build our neighborhoods and the places we live, financially uh, solves some short-term problems that typically, that, that mostly the federal government and state governments had. Uh, how do we create jobs? How do we create growth? How do we get the economy going? But in exchange for this, cities have taken on these enormous financial liabilities um, anytime you do a new development, do a new subdivision, put in a new big box store, have a new interchange or an overpass, you get all this growth and the growth solves a lot of those short-term problems. But that pipe in the ground, that concrete sidewalk, that uh, curb, that, that street, those all become local liabilities, promises that local governments, which we can just you know draw a hashtag uh, us as taxpayers, Okay. Um, you know, at the local level, become responsible for for taking care of, and when you add up all of the wealth that is created through these transactions, when you look at all the all the wealth, all the uh, all the money, all the you know all the revenue, and you compare that to the liabilities that we take on, it, it's not even close. We are losing tons of money. And this manifests at the local level. This manifests with neighborhoods falling apart, uh, cities falling apart, um, cities becoming desperate for new growth and, and doing things that are, are just patently ridiculous and harmful, um, cities redirecting their energy away from actually being of service to the people that they serve and towards you know programs and developments and, and other things that can bring in fresh capital to keep this kind of Ponzi scheme going. And so what we advocate for is a, a different approach to building places, uh, one that ties into some of the, you know, the ancient wisdom we're going to discuss, um, but one that really begins with, uh, you know, the scale of humans and, and the way we prosper in our habitat. Wow, that sounds pretty ambitious. I, that was a I long think. elevator, but uh, yeah. that's, <laughs> we, if, I, if I had to say it like in a tweet, um, you know, on a tiny, tiny budget, we are taking on the multi-trillion dollar uh, development industry and trying to change the, uh, the our pattern of growth. That's sounds pretty incredible. How come they, all these uh, governments, you know, whether at whatever level, uh, took on? The, why did they take on these projects? It seems like it would be obvious that okay. Da- 20, 30 years, 15, whatever, down the line, we're not going to have enough money, so we can't do it. Are they, are they just totally ignorant of the accounting, or, or what was the reason for that? I, I mean, I wrote a whole book, and part of it was, was, explaining, was explaining this because I, I think, you know, you hear these narratives like, oh, politicians are just short-sighted and greedy. Well, you know, I've worked with a lot of politicians at the local level, and they really care about their communities. Um, you can say, well, developers and contractors are greedy and it's like, yeah, you know, uh, they, they need to make a living, but I, you know, I know a lot of these people and they're, they're good, decent people, mm-hmm. um, for the most part. I, I, th- I think if I were to summarize what happened, it was a, a collection of things coming together at the same time. 
the first one we can just you know categorize as like modernity we had machines we had equipment mm -hmm. we had automobiles we uh had this transformative power that you know humans have never had before you combine that with the effect of the great depression in world war ii which was really to humble a nation in a way that you know economically we didn't understand we didn't we didn't grasp and we still don't grasp you know what caused the great depression we argue over that today right um how to get out of it we argued over it then and we argue over it now um it was clear that what got us out of it was a war which is you know not anyone's definition of prosperity sure and to con you know to to in a sense not go back into uh depression um we reinvented america and, and we took all this, you know, kind of one shot of, of oil that we had, because we, I mean, we, we had, we used to be the leader in the world in, in oil production. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were the global reserve currency. We were the only industrial power not decimated by war. Um, you know, we had this united nation uh, against common, you know, united against common enemies. And we took all this and we said, let's put it to work, fixing the historic problems of the city which are, are many and are well-known and, and have existed throughout human history. Um, so we created a new version of America. And, you know, we, we call it today the American dream, you know, a house and a yard and two kids and a couple cars. And, you know, there's variations on that. Obviously, culturally, we've adapted to. But the, the underlying thing is the same. You know, we want an ownership society. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, here's, here's what you're working for. And I think, you know, collectively, when you, when you buy into something like that on a, on a, a cultural scale, mm -hmm. a lot of the things that are very obvious once you understand them become questions you don't even ask. Um, you know, I, quite frankly, as an engineer for many, many years, I was out doing projects and the only questions that I was ever asked is, you know, how many jobs will this create? How much growth will this be? How much is our new tax base? No one ever. And I mean, you would think that this was so obvious, but no one ever asked like 30 years from now, will we be able to afford to fix this street? So it's just I'm, assumed that some kind of magic juice or prosperity would keep going and, and you could pay, you keep paying for it. There's almost like an underlying like obviousness that goes with the statement that the places that are growing are more prosperous than the places that aren't. And that is obvious because when you look at places that are growing, you know, think of think of any city where you've got or any region where you've got like the city that everyone's moving to now. Mm -hmm. It's growing, right? It's getting all the the new stores and all the new places and that just like inherently, I mean, who's going to argue like that's the place to be? It's self-evident. Everybody wants to be there. Um, what we're not looking at is kind of the life cycle of these places. Um, it's a little like in the analogy I use in the book is slash and burn agriculture. You know, you could say, mm -hmm. well, here, you know, here's the new part of the, the, the region that everybody wants to grow food in. And here's the great place. And it's like, yeah, because you just chop down the trees and it's got all the nutrients. But then 30 <laughs> years later, that's all gone. And you're doing it, you know, to some other place a little bit further away. And you're like, well, now this is the hot place. And you could, you could mentally draw a correlation that, you know, well, the best places are the places where, you know, the, the, the food is being grown. And you're like, well, yeah, but, you know, let, let's talk about this in a longer time frame. And, and you quickly realize that, like, that's a silly, that's a silly analysis. It's, it's a, 
I, I would say it's a simplistic analysis, but I, I think that that's even selling it short. It's a very human analysis, right? Right. Like as as human beings, we are in a sense wired um, to 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 do this, and we have to be very intentional um, if we're going to kind of go against those base um, instincts that we have. Um, th which are which are not wired for long term, you know, analysis like this. They're wired for survival. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, if you're talking about a thirty year cycle, you know, if, that seems like a long time. I could probably enjoy one of these new unsustainable places for how you know five to ten years, and it'll be great, uh, and then move on uh, with my life. So it doesn't even occur to me to worry about it. Um, 30 years down the line. Well, where, you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm 46. If you said, you know, Chuck, what's your 30 year plan? I, I love the house I'm in. I love the neighborhood I'm in. Maybe I'll be here in 30 years. I didn't move here with the intention that I would be living here in my mid seventies. You know, mm -hmm. I moved here with the intention that this is a great neighborhood to raise kids in. It's very close to the school and to everything else. And uh, I'm really thinking about the next, you know, three years, five years, seven years, uh, while we go through this phase in our life. So I, I think it's very natural for people to, um, you know, when, when they move, think that, you know, I'm, I'm making a life commitment here, but also recognizing in their mind that the motivation is, you know, where's my job today? Um, where are my kids going to school? You know, the, the, it's very uh, short-term thinking. Right. But isn't it, I, I'd imagine it's, we're, it's not just modern uh, people that were uh, short, are short-term thinkers. Why weren't there, you know, developers back in the, uh, you know, with the ancient Romans and, and Greeks that uh, could build all this infrastructure that would ultimately not be sustainable? Well, I guess it ultimately wasn't sustainable since, you know, some of them are yeah. no longer around. But uh, is there something different about the post-World War II environment that allowed you know, these were considered investments to be, to be made. Well, th this is, I think the, the big shift, um, because, you know, these are human flaws a and you can see throughout human history where humans have overextended themselves. Um, you know, I mean, go read about the, the, you know, the kind of collapse of the Roman empire and how, you know, you woke up one day and in, in England uh, with Roman soldiers and then, you know, and, and all these kind of Roman things around you. And then uh, a year later it was all gone. Right. Just like overnight um, practically. So, you know, getting overextended is something that human civilizations have done time and time and time again. Um, the Anasazi in the uh, Southwest of America, I just finished reading a whole thing about them and, and, and essentially, you know, how their civilization was this very big advanced civilization and they utilized too many of the resources and essentially, you know, had this big collapse. Um, this is a recurring story. I, I think the thing for us and the thing that makes this one maybe not different, but but uh, different in magnitude was just mm -hmm. the fact that we're our vision, our, our our vision is not constrained by our reach. You know, if you were going to build a a really big uh, cathedral in uh, Milan, 
um, you were embarking on something that not only would you work on, but your kids would work on and your grandkids would work on. Sure. J- just to just to complete the initial building, forget maintaining it for all time. You know, these uh-huh. were like multi generational projects. Um, we actually have the capacity today with our machinery, uh, with our financing mechanisms, um, you know, with, with our, our building construction materials to uh, imagine a project today, a, a grand, magnificent, you know, mega project um, in, a, in a handful of years, be, you know, depending on what it is, you know, what regulatory hurdles you got to go through. But I mean, from a, just a construction standpoint, in a year or two, be out building it. And, and see it, you know, through to completion. Uh, we do this with like football stadiums all the time, right? Sure. And so all of a sudden we can overnight transform the world around us in these radical, radical ways that uh, would have kind of been tempered, you know, through time in other, in other time periods, you know, uh, so you just you're unconstrained and and when you're unconstrained and then you've also created this narrative where our whole economic system is based on additional growth and 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 that comes through this kind of building at the local level it kind of creates this feedback loop where you just need more and more and more and more that makes a lot of sense i i don't get the feeling that you know, post-World War II America outside of a few recessions really, really had any major constraints, or at least, you know, in terms of finances or uh, collective vision, as you mentioned, or a cultural vision of how life should be. I want to go to this story you told about your first trip to Pompeii uh, in your book. Yeah. I think it, was, it was maybe a Rotary Club sponsored trip to, to Italy. Yeah. Was that it? Um, yeah, yeah. And you initially uh, thought about how primitive this like little kind of fast food type restaurant you encountered was and how we've uh, advanced so far past it. Why did you include this story uh, in your book? I, I was trying to... Um let people go on a journey of humility with me, right? Um, you know, a, a, a big part of getting an engineering degree and a big part of getting a planning degree. At, at that point, I didn't have the planning degree. I just had the engineering degree. Um, but, but both of these are bestowing a certain level of expertise on individuals. Um, I, at the point that I was standing in Pompeii for the first time, I had PE behind my name, which stands for professional engineer, which means I have a, a, a difficult degree to get, a degree few people can can achieve from a technical standpoint. Um, I had mm-hmm. taken some really difficult tests and I had worked as an apprentice for four years and you know was, was among a very small group of Americans who had uh, attained something in terms of licensure that allowed me to do, essentially said, I have expertise other people do not. Um, And I'm standing here looking at this through that lens of my expertise going, well, this is really nice. I mean, I I see how these people set this town up and isn't it quaint? You know, it's it's very nice. Of course, we wouldn't do it this way today because we're far more sophisticated in our understanding and and how we do things. Um, But, you know, it's kind of fun to walk around and look at, you know, what the what the what the hacks from the past used to do and i i I know that the first time i was there like that was 
It was Pompeii is amazing. I mean, and and I think archaeologically, you're looking at something that if you just think of like Vesuvius blowing up and and taking out this town is is impressive from a mm -hmm. nature standpoint. Um, but it 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 really took me a while to work through how um, ridiculously ignorant I had been of the complexity of that society and the complexity of particularly that little fast food place that I. At the time, I had worked on an Arby's of all things. This is going to sound kind of silly. <laughs> okay. So we had an we had an Arby's come in. I was working for an engineering firm at the time, and we had Arby's come into my little town. And I remember I liked the chicken cordon bleu, but we didn't have an Arby's like anywhere around us. So if I was ever in a city with one, I would go to Arby's and get one of these sandwiches because I really liked them. <laughs> Great. And then we had Arby's come and my firm was uh, the one that did the site layout and design. And I was a little part of this project. And so I had just finished that up, just finished, you know, the stormwater ditches and the parking lot layout and, and all this stuff for this silly Arby's. And so I'm overlooking at the ancient equivalent of Arby's, right? The, and I remember thinking that in my head, like, well, this would have been their Arby's. You know, you, you had someone <laughs> who would have had food in a little pot and people would have been walking along the street and they would have, you know, purchased from essentially a step up from a street vendor, you know, mm -hmm. a, little, a, little, a little fast food restaurant. No place to sit down and eat, but you grab your stuff and you went. Um, and I remember just thinking like, you know, wow, we've come so far, you know, now I can drive through, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, maybe and, you could have and, carted through or something. Yeah, I don't, maybe before. they, maybe they had a, a cart through. Yeah. Um, but you know, once you, uh, in, later in life, I, I, I had a chance to re-examine that narrative and re-examine that place and do it with a more, uh, and I'm just going to say humble, um, I, I I'm not going to say complete in any way, but I think humble is the best way to think of this, mm -hmm. a, a more humble uh, viewpoint of what was actually going on there. And it was just stunning to me how many different aspects of humanity and human life um, was captured in just that little, that little shop along the street. Yeah. I think in your book, you talked about how in that shop, you would maybe have uh, a family also living there, kids in the back, and uh, maybe a diversity of work roles where if you weren't selling, you know, enough, you know, chicken cordon bleu sandwiches, uh, one of the other family members might go out to be hired hired out as labor for some other project and creating a little bit of diversity of income and uh, all these other little effects that you wouldn't think about coming from this simple shop is that something completely like foreign to us now as as a modern you know developed society i, I don't think it's foreign to us at the family level at the individual or the family or even like the block or neighborhood level okay I, I think where it gets stripped away is in the and we can just think of it as like a, the hyper specialization of this kinetic growth model um that sounds complicated so let's <laughs> let's, well, let's dive into yeah that yeah so so when when you were looking at that 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 little fast food place in pompeii um 
it was a two-room place. The front room, you can think of the one along the street as being the shop and the back room as being the home. Okay. And these are very simple places, right? Um, but what you had there was you had a certain level of income diversity. So from the family standpoint, you could have, and, and this is going to be gender incorrect for today, but let, sure. let's, let's, let's try to transform ourselves into their time. Uh-huh. You would have more than likely had the, 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 mate, the maternal figure of the house who would have had the chore of not only looking after the kids during the day, but also running this, you know, this street vending place, b- baking the food, putting this together, selling it, doing the transactions. I mean, this, this was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, they could they could make that work a little bit easier by having the kids and the place they worked like right in one place, you know. Yeah. So you so so you didn't have a daycare two miles away. You drove to dropped your kids off. You you know you you basically were able to kind of, to kind of juggle all these things at once. Um, you then would have whoever was able to work uh, in the family that wasn't running the store be able to go out to the edge of the place and and, and look for labor and get a get a you know get a job working in the vineyards or whatever for the day. And this is a very common practice. Well, now the family has like income diversity, right? Right. Um, and, and, and and you also have a, a thing where like if there's no work out there, you can uh, you know go go get some other labor somewhere else or you can work on the the building uh you can help out with the shop um you know you you look today and today families try to create this kind of diversity for themselves they try to think of their lives in in terms of you know uh, i just look at my family like we moved here closer to town uh, a few years back because our kids were at this age where they were in a lot of activities and they were um Doing different things. I wanted to be closer to my work because it was going to save me a few hours a week of driving. Mm-hmm. And so, so we we made this move. If you look at the environment that the people in Pompeii did this in, um, it would have been an environment that actually was a collection of all those individual kind of choices. It, it would have been scaled to that kind of decision making. Yesterday, here in my life. I drove out to the neighboring community. I drove four, five miles, uh, five different times to bring my kids to dance, to school, uh, to dance again, to uh, (laughs) a thing. My city is set up for the convenience of the different entities that have created. Like the school was built in a field in the middle of nowhere. Right. And it was built there not for my convenience or for the convenience of like anyone who lives in the city at all. It was built there because it was the cheapest land that the school could get and they could build this big campus out there that that met their needs. The dance studio is on like the other side of the city. Again, on a cheap lot where they could get, you know, the right zoning and the right size parking lot and all that. It's not close to where anybody lives. Um, everybody who goes to dance studio has to drive there, has to drive there at peak periods of time. You know, it's, it's not convenient. It's set up for them. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's, it, again, the, the things that inspired that location, that design are all 
derivations of you know what does our zoning code require? Uh, what are the what is the financing of this building require? For the school district, it required a big bond referendum with you know all these voters voting to approve it. For the dance studio, it was whatever commercial financing they could get. Well, the commercial financing and the bond both require big levels of parking. The zoning requires parking. They require these big setbacks. Um, they require no common walls. You know, you've got to have an individual mm. building. Uh, th th there are all these things that are designed and set up in service of these systems that are really not the human system, right? They okay. really don't start with... Because if you started with the families who were at the studio, or if you started with the families that went to the school and like their needs, you would design those things vastly different. Sure. You know? Like, who wants their kid on the bus for an hour every morning and an hour every afternoon? Like, nobody does that. That's really dumb, you know? So are, are you say, are you suggesting that, let's, let's go back to the Pompeii uh, times, had yeah. they had an interest or the level of wealth where they could send their kids to, you know, well, just regular school, but also dance class and, and whatever extracurricular activities they would not come across these, you know, zoning regulations or, or, or kind of these artificially created needs. And you might have, you know, smaller schools built into existing buildings or, you know, highly uh, studios with high optionality that could be a dance studio or, uh, you know, something else uh, during the time of day. Is, is that an accurate assessment of what makes it so different? Yes. Although let's let's be let's be genuine, okay, and and not sugarcoat it, right? Because I, I the, the the thing that I always I always feel compelled to do is to to write you know identify the trade offs here. Sure. So so my kids go to a dance studio that is a gorgeous dance studio. It it has big huge rooms. It's got mirrors all over. It's got multiple different rooms at the same time. So you have a facility that is made just for dance. And, you know, if you wanted to adapt it to, say, uh, a music venue, um, it would not work very well for that. Okay. If you wanted to adapt it for, like, um, I don't know, you know, name your other kid activity that kids would do. Like, it, it wouldn't work as well for that. It, it's really, really great as a dance studio. Mm -hmm. It's got the little hooks for people to hang their bags on. It's got benches for people to sit down on. It's got a place for parents to watch. It's like a, it's a dance studio. If we went back thousands of years to Pompeii, where, where they absolutely had dancing, <laughs> yep. and people who were trained to dance, and people who did dancing, and and probably people who made a living dancing, you know, mm -hmm. which is very very difficult to do today. But let's say you know what would what they would have been forced to do is to essentially hack uh, a, a dance program in space that was suboptimal. Okay. In terms of like as a dance studio, um, whatever they had would have had to be, you know, we're going to do dance here and maybe it's in the street. Maybe it's uh, in this back room over here. Maybe it's, you know, somewhere else. But whatever it was, that space would have to serve multiple functions. So it wouldn't be you, you couldn't have like a building that was just optimized for, for one thing like that. Think of your own house, you know, the house in Pompeii. When I describe a two-bedroom place, you know the, the the idea of a two-bedroom 
or a two-room house today is absurd because at the very least you need a bathroom which is a separate place uh-huh. from from a bedroom uh from a kitchen from a living room um what they were forced to do because of a lack of you know resources and and because of the trade-offs involved um they had to in in a sense uh make things work in multiple the way i describe it in the book is they had to harmonize many different competing interests right. so they had many many things they had to do and they had to make them all work we have been able to um pretend that we can have all these different things separately and they can all function separately and there's no need to kind of in a sense harmonize anything we can have an arby's here we can have a dance studio over here we can have a school way over here and the only thing that gets you know kind of bent out of shape over that is that our families spend all their time driving around um you know, everyone's spread out. Everyone is uh, is part of this thing, and you know we're going broke doing it. Uh, <laughs> they they couldn't have they couldn't have had that. They they if they would have gone broke, they would have failed. They would have gone away. There is, I guess, we no longer have the uh, Arby School of Dance uh, in, our, right. in our modern society. Right. So. Yeah, that's but you I, I, but you do. I mean, the the funny thing is, is I I think. You know, I live in a small town, and when you look at this small town, and you look at especially the way it was laid out, you know, 50, 60 years ago, um, the, the schools here were all neighborhood schools. Hmm. They, you go to the gym in in the school, and the gym was also configured to be an auditorium, right? Um, because it also served as a community meeting hall. That's where our elections were held. That's where uh, church was had sometimes on Sunday mornings. Um, you know, it, 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 different denominations would rent out or have it for different periods of time. Um, this was not a wealthy place. And so they essentially couldn't build, uh, you know, everybody has their own church. Everybody has their own thing. We're going to have a separate place for elections that we only use, you know, uh, mm-hmm. every now and then. Um, they were, they were, uh, they were re- required by circumstance to harmonize all these different things. Um, you know, Pompeii, you just did the same exact thing. Right. So what, you use a term in your book called spooky wisdom. What is, yeah. what, what is spooky wisdom? It's very catchy. It's how I tried to explain my limited set of knowledge on this and, and how I was continually astounded when I would find something new that I thought I understood that I really didn't. Um, I, I, here's how I, here's how I would describe it. And, and I hope this isn't too far of a, a, a distraction. Um, I, I think we all can be astounded by nature Mm-hmm. And, you know, we find these, you know, we land on Australia and we find these marsupials and my gosh, they're weird. Like, where did this come from? Like, why do they have pouches and why do they do this? And look at how a, a kangaroo starts as this tiny little like worm-like thing that crawls up from the uterus into the pouch. And like, this is just, this is just astounding. And I feel like one of the things, my, my, my oldest daughter has biology right now. She's just in ninth grade. And I, I love chatting with her because it's um, biology is, and really science at that level, is this continual process of being astounded and amazed by 
what has been produced essentially through natural selection right well like sure. what has when and and we can say you know what god has created or you know what what has evolved i, I don't care what you know uh term you want to use to describe it but what you're describing is something of immense wonder that we just marvel at be, be, because everything we discover um, opens up the door to like dozens and dozens of more things that we're just <laughs> continually astounded by. When you recognize that human habitat, the way we built cities for for thousands and thousands of years, is uses the same kind of evolutionary process as an anthill or a beehive or you know, the way the rainforest is, is assembled, um, you can start to grasp that sub underneath the hood in ways that are impossible for us to fully grasp or understand, all of these different competing things were, you know, matched up against each other, weighed against each other, uh, you know, vetted, um, tried out, tried out hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times, and and better ways of doing things evolved and changed for, for reasons like we have no idea why we we don't even know why they it, it turned out this way, um, but it created in a sense this like this 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 operating system, this way of building places that has embedded in it not just the things that we can grasp, you know how do you um, where do you dispose of your waste? You know, where do you right. bury your dead? Where do you, um, you know, all these kind of things that we're like, okay, I can, you know, I get what they're doing there. But even like spooky, weird things like, you know, the whole uh, Figma Taxis conversation, you know, like what, um, you know, how do you space buildings so that they feel comfortable for mm -hmm. human beings to be in that space? Um, you know, how do you configure the fronts of buildings so that they have a reassuring kind of sense to our human subliminal subconscious? Um, these are things that, you know, as we've become aware of them, I think you just have to, in the same way you're astounded by, you know, the the, the fly you come across that has four, you know, 40 different eyes in different <laughs> directions and sees things in weird ways that we never would have perceived. You have to be astounded by what, thousands of years of trial and error of building human habitat actually produced yeah that's i think that's a good description of of spooky wisdom i kind of experienced that uh, i don't know if you got a chance to kind of look at the broad contours of what i was doing with the ancient wisdom project but i came at it with the approach that and I'm, i have a totally secular background but that okay by doing some of these things within uh, practice or whatever within a religion uh it'll have some kind of effect on me even if i don't believe it so for one example i prayed five times a day when i was doing my islam month and i was surprised yeah. by it was it was inconvenient uh, i you know i had to book a conference room at work to do my afternoon prayer and hope no one came in and saw me doing you know some weird thing on the on the floor but i realized that that was kind of a feature of this it, the whole point of it was that it was inconvenient and then it kind of gets your mind off the profane and onto the sacred at regular times uh during the day and it, it kind of had a profound effect on on how i wanted to 
or how I thought about life on, just on a day-to-day basis. And it, it, yes. the feeling went away as soon as I stopped doing it. Yes. Ma, ma, uh, ma, yeah. I, I think for me, one of the most inspiring things was to learn that uh, Mother Teresa um, struggled with uh, with her faith at times. Sure. And, you know, you, you think like, how is, my gosh, like, how is that possible? And she had, you know, talked about uh, moments of ecstasy, like, like you know, finding, uh, you know, ecstasy in a sense, spiritually, mm-hmm. and feeling very connected to God. But then having these long stretches of time where she felt isolated and alone. Yeah. And, you know, finding this path of... Uh, what what I think I'm Catholic, so what Catholics would just call you know like the work of being Catholic, right? Um, you know, going through the motions as being this path towards, um, you know, trying to uh, to to live a good life, even if it's not one that is um, like is faith the the cause or the 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 uh, the dest- you know the end. And right. uh, I think that's something that yeah, you're 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 you and I are speaking the same language on yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I, I think both, yeah, you know, part of this spooky wisdom club. I I want to get into uh, a little bit about since you're the strong towns expert here, you have an appreciation for spooky wisdom, the time tested and ancient uh, traditions and practices that have that have led to success for for you know, prior uh, generations of, of human beings. Are there, can you provide some examples of modern development structures or design that you believe to be an impediment to human flourishing? I, I, for example, you, while you're, I'm sure your, your daughters love their dance class, shuttling back and forth the few miles in a, in a car every day certainly seems like an impediment to your, you know, sanity. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you're, I mean, it, it's, huh, I went through a fanatic phase um, where, you know, the, the, like a fanatic, Winston Churchill described a fanatic, I think perfectly. He said, it's someone who can't change their mind and won't change the topic. <laughs> um, so, That's great. you know, there, there was this period of time where I started to, uh, you know, this it was this spooky wisdom was revealed to me, or, or my lack of, my lack of uh, of no, of true knowledge became apparent, like in in just hyper fidelity to me, like I'm, I'm not grasping so much, and when that happens to you, and then you're surrounded by other professionals who are themselves, you know, experts who know all the answers and da 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 da, um, it, it's it's there's a there's a lot of uh, tension in that because there's this you know you're the you're the smart aleck in the room if you pretend you know more than everybody else um but then you're trying to say like like look i don't know anything mm-hmm. um you know and neither do you <laughs> <laughs> and and that's that's a that's a really hard thing to do um when i when i started to to go down that that particular rabbit hole it, it became really painful to me to watch how we live and you know since we brought up the religion part i I can i'll start with that um you know i am i'm i'm a catholic and i'm i've grew up catholic and i left the church for a while and i i came back to it 
um, not for any like existential, like, you know, something terrible happened in my life, but I just, I, I mm -hmm. felt like I, I needed, um, it was a, it was a part of me that, uh, that, that I, I needed that structure in a sense to be, to be a, you know, live a fulfilled life. Um, but even for the, the best of us, uh, in, in my particular parish, you know, church is often a thing you do for an hour on Sunday. Right. Um, and I recognized that religion or the practice of religion was something that, uh, you know, Catholics of the past, you know, forget other religions around the world where, you know, you can go to religion is kind of a human thing. Um, you know, you can make a very good secular biological case for religion mm -hmm. just by anthropologically studying how people have organized themselves and, and, and discover that places that were successful had these kind of binding mechanisms to them. Uh, you know, for, for me, when I look at other Catholics, you know, of the past, I recognized that this was a not not a Sunday activity. This was like a daily thing. Um, for me, it was you know, do you do you pray at home? Do you you know do the rosary? Like what what are, what are the things you do in isolation? It came very clear to me that like Catholics of the past did nothing in isolation. <laughs> it, like everything was done together with groups of people. You would go to the church and you would all pray the rosary together. You would go line up and and do uh, reconciliation together. You would take communion together. You would have you know our, our, whatever the version in the past of the spaghetti dinner was together. Mm -hmm. You 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 would live these things. Um, you know, quasi communally in a sense, still as a, as an individual and as an individual family, but within a a culture and a place. I mean, even like the the place you put the church in town, uh, you know, right. like you couldn't escape the gaze of God, you know, because that was like there it is, right up the street, um, <laughs> literally, you know, the you tallest know, building in town. Yeah, and and so you know, when I started to to look at this and said, well, how did that affect people? You know, you can read about the Reformation and about corrupt priests and, you know, come in and confess your sins and then pay your way out of purgatory. And, you know, you can get caught up in that whole narrative. You can also look at it as, you know, here were people who lived through difficulty. Um, I think today all of us experience difficulty and hardship. Um, here's how, you know, here's a structure set up to help them a deal with that difficulty and actually become uh, more complete human beings. And I'm not suggesting like Catholicism is the only way to do it, but it's one way, and it's the way that that's was okay. Most you can you can me. say it. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, uh, but you know, you you look, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I recognize that the city that I live in. Even though you know we have a pretty high percentage of, of Christians and high percentage of Catholics in my city, um, we 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 have designed our city, our neighborhood, the area around the very church that I go to, to in a sense suppress all of the things that would naturally make you a Catholic. Um, you know, all of the the aspects of practicing Catholicism are things that you have to do pushing back against the society you live in. Um, take that now to like all these different areas of life. Um, you know, one of the things we're struggling with today is growing up, you know, watching our kids grow up uh, without the type of social interaction that for for me, you know, I'm in my mid-40s, was, was very natural. Mm -hmm. For my parents would have been even more natural. 
Um, so, you know, we had this thing a couple of years ago where it was the, uh, I, I can't remember what the, um, the, the, the little computer app where they were, uh, going around, uh, to parks and, and, uh, it was, it, it, it was the, the, the Japanese, um, like Pikachu and all those things. I can't, I can't oh, remember what the, they're called. Yeah. The Pokemon, uh, yeah. Pokemon. Yeah. So there was this, there was this app where like the kids were out, uh, catching Pokemon like in the park and stuff on their phone. And it was, there was this big scale, like all, it was all over the news, you know, it was all over like here too. Like, why are all these kids walking around like zombies? <laughs> we're, we're just, we're just not usually used to having people outside. Right? Yeah. So, so my kids, we live in this neighborhood that I used to come into as a kid to, to hang out with my friends and go around and meet people and, and be a kid in. And we moved here and I, you know, they got bikes. I'm like, go out and, and be with your friends. And they're like, I don't know how to do that. Um, and they, they don't. They, they spontaneously won't go out and do this. Well, I recognize that my, my mobility was like much, much less than my parents were. My parents were like, I don't even know if they were supervised at all. I mean, they would just go um, from when they were kids. Um, we're having this existential problem now because these these you know in in some ways uh these young people are incredibly smart but they're also struggling with anxiety with depression with uh, relationships with with things that are very human to struggle with but without like an obvious mechanism to kind of work through them um you know they're not getting together in groups of people they're they're, they're having less sex they're becoming pregnant teenagers at a, at a far lower rate they're doing fewer drugs and fewer you know smoking less and you would say like well that's all great but they also have like really high rates of suicide neuroticism anxiety um all the kind of human things that you work out in groups of people um my neighborhood is incredibly safe you know, we're, we're, <laughs> we've, we've built a, you know, a place where everybody can sit inside their fortress and, uh, and, and not have to have, you know, uncomfortable interactions with their neighbors. Yet, if you look at that spooky wisdom and you recognize that humans have always had those things, it's tough not to point to, uh, you know, the, the depression and the loneliness and all these things as byproducts of what we've built. I could go on and on and on. There's, there's a, you know, like I said, the fanatic phase in me. You just start to see it everywhere, everywhere. So do you? Yeah, I, I agree. So I, I honestly, I've never felt super attached to uh, a particular place in a way, or I don't feel like I've ever had like a strong community. I think the strongest. I, I was in the Navy briefly, and I had you know some Navy friends. Uh, I felt a strong community there. I wasn't attached to place. I remember growing, I was actually born in Korea and lived there until I was about 12. And we lived in an apartment complex and it was fun to run around with the other kids. Uh, but I've, I've never really grown up in experience with uh, the church or, or anything like that. But how, you even talk about your parents' generation, which I they, they've kind of straddled the post-World War II development yeah. structure. So... Is it? Do you think uh, it has something to do with the the physical design or of of modern development that has caused these cultural, uh, you know, downfalls or lack lack of community? Or is that something that was going to happen kind of no matter what, um, regardless of you know how uh, how much of a strong town environment we we've 
managed to retain? I don't know. And, and I, I really don't. And, and I, I say that on two levels. The first one is that I'm, I'm not an expert on this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got gut reactions and I, I think about these things a lot, but I, I don't know. But, but I, I think the other part, and, and this is maybe the most important part, is that I think these things are very complex. I mean, I, I think what you're talking about when you talk about humans and human behavior is you're talking about these really complex systems that have, you know, multiple vectors of, of causation. So if we just look at, um, like, uh, suicide or depression or loneliness or anxiety, um, you know, sometimes it's our gut inclination to treat these things uh, with medicine. Mm-hmm. How do we help people get their mood back? You know, what, what kind of drug can we give them? Sometimes we, uh, we take a step in a different direction and say, well, there's cognitive behavioral therapy and how do we, how do we help people rewire their brains and, and, and you know, fix them that way? Um, and, and, you know, I think both of those, in, in both of those approaches, what we've discovered is this vast array of humans, some of who have, you know, proteins or hormones that are, you know, causing them problems, some of who have traumatic experiences that are causing them problems. Um, and, and, and you can say, like, you know, th- these are very different experiences and, and we can kind of pinpoint, you know, some vectors of, of causation here. What I actually look at, and I, I think what is most challenging for me, is that um, the underlying kind of gravity or the underlying like DNA that that has you know kind of wi- wired the places we live in is so fundamentally different today that it's really hard to tease out what is uh, you know uh, caused by a traumatic experience. And, and and what is uh, the traumatic experience is just like the thing that tipped you over the edge. Right. Um, in, in other words, you know, how much of this our habitat would have corrected in the past? The analogy I like to use is a beehive. You know, when we, when we look at a beehive and to the extent that we've studied them and we've studied bees and we've studied how bees uh, socially interact with each other, which, which by the way, we learn this is these are bees. I mean, I think we would all agree lower on the um, the complexity scale than humans. Sure. Yet it seems like every year there's new things that we un- that we come to learn about bees and, and you know bee interactions and how they do. You know, we're learning new things about them. So so take us and you know ten x, hundred x, a thousand x the complexity. You get what we're talking about here. If, if we take a beehive and we say, you know, this is where you, you this is where you live, this beehive has evolved with the bees to, in a sense, complement what it means to be a bee, the social structure, the interactions, all the complexity of bee life. If we were to take that beehive, and you can see this because we've done it in in bee colonies where we try to, you know, increase bee production. If you take a beehive and you start to change it and modify it. And, and, you know, if we were to create like bee cul-de-sacs and bee frontage roads and, you know, <laughs> di- different things like that, I, I don't think any of us would be surprised if you wind up with like neurotic, sluggish, depressed bees. <laughs> and the reality is, is that when you look at bee farms, you do see aspects of this where the bees don't 
mate and reproduce in the way that they did before. They don't have the same social structure. They do have what appears to be some type of anxiety or, or you know, um, di- different different types of behavior that are non, uh, you know, don't show up in, in natural bee colonies. Take humans and do the same thing now, you know, to rewire our beehive, our habitat, and completely transform it and then drop these new people into it people who are social social beings i mean we're wired to be incredibly social and interactive and you drop us all into this new environment that suppresses all of that systematically and you're like yeah we do we have depression yeah do we have neuroticism yeah do we have lots of anxiety yeah what causes it you know and and if you're very religious you'd say well it's like a religion and if you're uh you know um, you know, you, if you're a feminist, you maybe you'll say, well, it's the paternal structure of society. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think we can all point to like our vectors of causation. And I'm not going to deny any of those have a basis in reality. But when you've undone the essential like habitat that we live in, you're just running a massive experiment on humans and no one really knows where it ends. It seems as if our environment has evolved faster than our humanity uh yeah in this case i i think that's a good way of putting it you know when whenever you do a test we we send these emails out as part of our organization like you know just nurturing trying to get people into our our conversation and you can change and do two different headlines right like Mm -hmm. here's headline a and headline b and you can run that test but if you do headline a headline b and then you know, different message in the body, A and B. Well, now you've got four different tests you're running. Right. If, if you make another switch, like we're going to, you know, send it to this group or that group. Well, now you've got eight different tests you're running. In, in human existence, we're running an infinite number of tests right now, <laughs> all at once, um, you know, with, with the changes we've made to our habitat. Um, and you know you you look at all these struggles that we're having and it's a little bit hard to isolate them from the fact that we've just really transformed what it means to live life as a human no one's ever lived this way before you can even go around the world and few other cultures live anything resembling what we do in north america right given uh, so first i was struck by this chapter um the final chapter of your book, Intentional, uh, An Intentional Life. And in this chapter, you discuss uh, an experience early on in your career where a uh, Hasidic Jew in Brooklyn uh, invites you out to discuss developing a uh, new town, essentially out in uh, some rural area. And you, rural Kansas. Rural Kansas. <laughs> uh, it's it's an absurd story, right. but yeah, that that part of it is absurd. Like build us a build a bunch of Hasidic Jews a city in rural Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> and like right there, it's like a punchline to a you know a joke or something. Yeah, right? it, it's it was it was really great. And but what I what I loved most was about uh, about the story was all the things you observed about their lives that were so it seemed like it had evolved over time i mean not brooklyn is still relatively new as far as the history of the world but there's been a strong Hasidic jewish presence there and how everything was optimized kind of around what they what they valued can how would you go about 
I guess either selecting a place to live or uh, yeah, choosing a place to live based based on your values or how would you even just go about choosing a place to live at all because that uh, these play uh, the Hasidic Jews are unique in the sense that obviously they have a strong value system already built in and have adapt have changed the environment around them to suit what they need if you're not a Hasidic Jew how would you go about select uh, how would you go about selecting a place to live that's maybe more of the strong towns vibe that you that you advocate for it, it, it the Hasidic Jews are so fascinating yeah. that, that that whole thing was such a trip to me because um you know I, I like i said earlier i try to i, I try to think of my I, I try to be a good catholic and uh i struggle with it i mean it's hard it right. takes a lot of work it takes a lot of attention and here were people who had created a place for themselves um that actually to the extent that you can in, in modern america help them live the the life that they wanted to live and and i saw them in, in circumstances that I would have struggled with, being incredibly happy and fulfilled. I mean, I think that was the thing that was most amazing to me is how happy they were. Right. So, so I would take this question and say, you know, where can I move um, that would make me have that same level of joy and fulfillment and, and meaning in my life? And I, I think in America today, that's a, that's a hard question. Um, it's easy to answer, but I think the answer creates a lot of different uh, implications. Mm -hmm. um, some of them not good. Some of them, some of them beautiful, but some of them not good. I, I feel like the the defining thing is where can I live in a neighborhood of people um, that I can, in a sense, commune with that that I can share life with. Um, you know, l l being fully human. Uh, is not a matter of just an individual. It's not a matter of an, an individual and their immediate family. It, it really is something that historically, when we look throughout history, did involve other people. And, you know, it involved, uh, in a sense, sharing the ups and downs of life, the, the struggles, the, the happiness, the joy. Um, you know, it, it's, it's living in, as we would say in the Catholic Church, it's like living in communion with others. Mm -hmm. Um so I would look for a, a neighborhood, a place where I felt I, I had the best shot of that. Here's the downside, and I, and I think we got to be we, we got to be real about this because I think this is a challenge we've created for ourselves. Yeah. Um, in some ways, we've 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 made this very easy to do. Uh, we have created through zoning, through our development practices, what have you, different lifestyle enclaves. And so, if you're like a, a really rich person. And you're like, I only want to live around really rich people. Um, you know, you, you, there's a gated community for you somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, if you say like, I'm a I'm a white guy and I only want to live around other white people. Um, there's places you can move where you can live that lifestyle. Uh -huh. You know, you, um, so 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 there's a lot of like, um, you know, you, you, I, I don't want to just say like, go find a neighborhood to live in. I, I think one of the biggest problems we have today. It, just as an American culture, is that we have uh, you know self-sorted um, into uh, enclaves where we politically tend to think alike, and so you know people on on the political left and people on the political right tend to live in areas that dominated by people who see the world the same way they do, and that is affirming in some ways, um, you know, because it, it's comfortable. 
Um, but you can see where when it gets aggregated into a, you know a national political dialogue, it becomes really destructive because we we don't understand each other. We don't we don't speak to each other, and we we're not seeing the value in each other the way I, I think a, a more mixed or, or less homogenous political society would. So I I feel like this is one of those instances where like what is good for the individual is almost antithesis for the society yeah and, and and that's why i think that's we come back to that spooky wisdom again you know for me i have chosen to live in a neighborhood near my parish near my work near where my kids go to school where i have the opportunity to walk and not have to drive driving is an option i can exercise but i don't have to um i you know i've i've got places i can can go eat and meet with friends and 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 do things and i've got you know a social structure here and I, I i like it um but my brother lives in a suburb of minneapolis st paul and you know he he lives a life that i like i would never choose to live <laughs> um but i i go and visit him and he knows his neighbors i mean they they talk and to the extent that they can they've kind of carved out that part of meaning in their life um you know, so I, I I feel like more than going and finding the place, I almost feel like our challenge, if we're, if we're going to be, if we're gonna, if we're going to really going to do this human project in the United States today, I feel like our challenge is to start where we are with meeting our neighbors. How do we actually get to know not just who they are, like I know their name or I know where they work, but like getting to know them in the way that you would maybe understand some of their anxieties and some of their dreams about the future and, and some of, um, you know, the things that motivate them in life. And if we did that, I think the act of doing that would illuminate like the next things we should do t t together, really. Um, I think that's the thing that's missing the most. I, I guess I would start with that as opposed to like geographically, where would I move? I really love that. Uh, and I, and I pretty much uh, agree. I live in Arlington, Virginia and Arlington County is, yeah. is, you know, quite sprawled out a little. Um, you can have areas where there's kind of like a strip mall, but they also have some nice neighborhoods like mine, uh, the Clarendon neighborhood, which is very pleasant to live in, a bunch of restaurants. And, you know, it's uh, they've kind of bought into the mixed use um, develop, you know, development er uh, philosophy. So it's overall pleasant, expensive, but pleasant. I don't know. I don't feel particularly attached in the long term, but I don't get the sense that there's going to be some utopia for me where oh, I'm going to magically find that neighborhood where all of a sudden I feel connected to everyone and, you know, uh, understand their pains and hopes and aspirations. If I don't do that here already in a very, you know, very nice place that I live now. Um, so I, I think, I think you're on to something with, look, you make the, make the best of where you are now before you think you can find the, the perfect place elsewhere. Let me challenge you a little bit. Yeah. Um, Here's here's an observation of mine, and I, I'm I'm willing to to have people like challenge this, but but I would say that for me the places that I've seen that are the closest to what we've just described, you know, where people know their neighbors, know each other, are are collectively like working on life together, mm -hmm. tend to be the poorest neighborhoods, um, the neighborhoods where people are affluent. 
um, tend to be, in, in my estimation, in my experience, the opposite of that. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and I do think that there is something, um, you know, pernicious, let's just say, about, about affluence. It, I, let me give you my theory. Okay. And, and I would love, I would love for like a psychologist to weigh in on this because I, I'm probably way off base. <laughs> um, I feel like as humans, we have almost a couple different reactions and i'm a i'm a i'm a huge introvert you know so for me like a, a relaxing evening is sitting at home with a book yeah you me know? too like I, I, yeah yeah like that's that's great and my, you know if someone's like let's go out and i'm like yeah i would just like to sit here with a book um <laughs> it i i feel like as humans um we're kind of wired in two opposing ways one is we value that isolation we value that uh that 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 you know the sanctity of our own brains our own time our own uh you know just we call it me time maybe i don't know it's it's the idea that it's a lot of work i have a funeral to go to tomorrow do you know what i'm not interested in doing going to a funeral tomorrow <laughs> like i'm really not and, and and you know you've been to funerals i'm mm -hmm. sure that they're they're uncomfortable you don't know what to say uh people are there at different degrees of mourning you know i'm i'm not like this is someone i knew they were acquaintance of the family but not like deep so i'm not going to be like you know bawling in the back but there will be people there who will be because this is their dad or their grandfather how do you empathize you know what do you do it's a very uncomfortable situation here's the thing i have to go right and I don't have to go because like someone is making me go, but I have to go because like I really need to go. Like, I'm part of this community. Like this is, these are people that I I know and care about. Um, these are people that are part of my you know part of my social circle. Well, I think as humans we're kind of wired both ways, right? We're 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 wired to um, need that social interaction from people even when it's uncomfortable um even when like we'd rather not do it we really need to do those things in life to be fully human but we're also kind of wired to want to resist them and walk away from them in, in traditional human habitats i mean you go back uh you know thousands of years or you go to other places not north america places that are poorer or or you go to poor neighborhoods today in memphis or detroit or, or i've been doing some work in shreveport lately and what you see is that people don't have the option of not being connected to each other right right like they, they, they kind of by default maybe it's because they don't have as many cars and so they have to walk more and when you walk more you meet more people you run into them i, I walk all the time here and i run into people who don't have cars and I, i've gotten to know them because you stand at the intersection with them you know you, you you run into them you're just there you're in the same space um you know i i, I almost feel like there is a wiring that we have that uh you know our, our habitat when we're forced to be near each other by circumstance um, is beneficial to us in a way that our natural predilection pushes back against. I, I think a hundred percent agree here. I, I think it comes down to the, yeah, the frequency of interaction with the same people over and over again. I get the sense that it'd be, even if you never, spoke to them in any sort of meaningful way if you walked by each other in the neighborhood and you didn't say 
high at some point after a certain amount of interactions it's going to be you know you committed some sort of faux pas <laughs> you know well yeah well well think about this too i, I mean I, I think a big part of this is you know your family knows you very well and they know you very well because they see you when you wake up in the morning. They see you when you're hangry. Mm -hmm. They see you, you know, like they, they see the full spectrum of you. Right. Um, if you think of like going to, uh, like I went to my wife's work party, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, the people at my wife's work party know one version of me. Right. It's the version of me that got dressed up, put on cologne, you know, wore a nice suit coat and and went to this thing and was very polite and proper. My neighbors know that part of me too, but they also know a broader spectrum of me because they've seen me yell at my kids in the yard, <laughs> you know? <laughs> they, they've seen me uh, when I'm in a really good mood and smiling. They've seen me when I'm sad and depressed. You know, they, they've, they, they've, they've seen my wife and I walking hand in hand. They've seen my wife and I stomping, you know, away from each other when we're, uh, you know, not getting along. So, so, you know, the people immediately around me have this broader spectrum of who I am. Um, I think, you know, in the neighborhood that you're describing, and you're like, this is a beautiful place, but you know, maybe I'm not getting to know people as well as I could. Um, the the thing is, when you do, it tends to be on your terms, right? And, and I think that I think that's a big part of the difference, right? Yeah. I, well, I don't. I don't even have to interact with anyone if I don't want to. You know. Right. <laughs> so. Right. And, and anytime you did, it would it would essentially be on your terms, mm -hmm. right? Like in a way that. Uh, was comfortable to you and and that's that's not life right you know that's not that's not life yeah so the the, the guy whose funeral is tomorrow um you know i know his family very well because we were neighbors growing up mm. and i grew up on a farm they had a farm growing up um we would go help each other bring in hay or you know do do whatever on the farm and you know, because you had those kind of contacts, you would spend days with people and eat with them and, and, you know, do hard labor with them and, you know, stuff where you, where you, you, you were sweaty and stinky and, and dirty, you know, you weren't um, seeing everybody at their best, um, you know, so you get to know someone a little bit better. And that's, that's the bond I'm talking about. So do, have you, and I'm sorry, we're running a little bit late. So if you have to go, just you know, let I'm know. pretty good. We're good. Okay, great. Um, so have you had interactions with people that have lived in places like where I live and it's fairly affluent and everyone's somewhat estranged from each other? Have you have anyone deliberately try to change that dynamic and, and be successful at it? Yeah. No. I mean, yes, I've seen people try to change it. No, they have not. Yeah. And here's the, I don't want to be depressing about that, but I will say, you know, I have spoken in hundreds of cities around North America. Um, I get invited routinely to come and speak in different places about strong towns and strong towns ideas. Um, when I get asked to go to a very affluent place, mm. um, sometimes we will go, you know, depending on the group and, and what they're doing and what they're trying to do. But for the most part, I'm really less enthusiastic about those places. Sure. Um, it, it doesn't tend to, to, to amount to much. And when we do have these conversations, uh, the, because things are not as difficult, 
the urgency goes away. And it tends to be more, uh, the, 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 the push of the whole conversation tends to be more of what I've called like a main street or a rah-rah kind of approach. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, let's all get together and do this, uh, you know, this nice community center together. Right. And, you know, people are like, oh, okay, well, whatever. Well, okay. Or, or yeah, I'll get on board with that. Like, that sounds great. Um, you know, I go give a talk in uh, East Orange, uh, New Jersey. Um, which is a, like a struggling neighborhood in a struggling city. Um, and it was absolutely beautiful conversation because people were like, yeah, we're here working together. Like you're, you're helping us like give us some strategies and give us some ways to talk to people in power. And you're, you know, you're, you're helping us in a very different way. In those places, what I see is that dynamic leaders have a huge impact, a, a huge disproportional impact. But it's because in a sense, they're, um, they're hacking it all together mm -hmm. in in a in a community of people who are also like hacking every day, you know. To get, I, I came across this article yesterday about how entrepreneurship is at all time lows and business startups are at all time lows and and uh, you know in America we we have you know the whole thrust of the article is that we've lost this um, we've lost this uh, entrepreneurial moxie that we used to have mm -hmm. and. I'm like, yeah, we. I, I totally get that from an official statistics standpoint. Go to any poor neighborhood in in North America, and you're going to see the most entrepreneurial people. They're not down at City Hall applying for business permits, right? But they they are making their way in this world with so much, uh, you know, what what I think historically would be called entrepreneurial innovation, right? Those are the places that we're able to really connect with and I think help because they're the places ready to do the little things that you need to do uh, to start to figure this stuff out. I mean, it's all, I mean, the way I imagine it, it's all upside in those towns, whereas, you know, place like Arlington, Virginia, things are fine. So, you know, whatever. And you have a population that can probably, you know, just get a job at a decent, you know, large company or a government agency or whatever it is. Um, that's exactly it, it's it's the um you know you, you talk about well here's what here's how you're financially insolvent and for everybody in that system they're like yeah it's a little bit like you know the national debt conversation right um you know it's like yeah okay our national debt is you know two hundred thousand dollars per person uh you know um whatever you know i'm 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 better off than 90 percent of those people so however screwed you know i am they're going to be screwed 10 times worse and so i'm, I'm just not going to worry about it because you know in a sense the philosophy of you know i i don't have to outrun the bear i just have to outrun the slowest person yeah you know kind of <laughs> comes to the you know comes to play in in places like that um, you know, I, I will be a little bit better off than everybody else. So it's less of a sense of urgency for me. So going back to the, the questions, as far as selecting a place to live, uh, if, you know, if you're forced to move from wherever you are, you would suggest potentially going to what would, you know, maybe not poor in an absolute sense, but relatively poor, uh, or selecting a relatively poor neighborhood might be a good option if you're looking for some of those aspects of community and, and, and those elements of, of human flourishing that may be absent in a place like Arlington, Virginia. Is that accurate? Um, 
I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that if, if you were specifically looking to find that, yeah. um, I think the places you would find that in were, would be places that would be, in a sense, on the edge of poor places. Um, and, I, and I'm being, this is, this is being very um, almost draconian in, in like analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, I think what is good for the individual is not necessarily good for the society in this case. Right. Um, but some of the most dynamic places in terms of community are places where you have a, a mix of, um, uh, let's say a mix of affluence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you, you have people who are very poor, but you also have people who are middle class and maybe upper middle class. You have people who are very educated, people who are less educated, living, you know, in, in, in proximity to each other. I think those are the places that tend to have the most dynamism, the, the highest levels of community. And, uh, you know, I, I think the most upside in terms of human habitat uh, that I've seen places like Oswego, New York, which I wrote about in the book. Um, you can go to Oswego and and their historic, you know, rena- their their uh, Renaissance neighborhoods by by Manhattan standards are dirt poor, uh-huh. right? I, I mean, by by like Virginia standards, where you're at would be looked at as like very middle class. Mm-hmm. By that community standards is it's really high because there's a lot of neighborhoods that are much, much poorer and much more struggling. Right. But if, but if you go to one of those neighborhoods, you're going to be able to buy a nice house. Um, you're going to live in a place with a strong sense of community. You're going to get to know your neighbors. Um, and you know, you're not going to have the type of crime or, you know, struggles or difficulty that you would have in a very poor neighborhood um, where they're not able to, in, in a sense, people are are hacking their way through to a level where they 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 maybe don't have the time to create some of those social bonds. Mm. So yeah, it's I, I think that is I think that there's a sweet spot in there if you're being if if we're being completely selfish about like where would I live? Yeah. you know, um, I think there's a sweet spot in there somewhere, um, and it's not the gated community, and it's not the you know the place in Detroit where when you call the fire department, they don't show up for 45 minutes, you yeah. know, like th- there's something a, a in between there that I think is, a uh, is exciting. Yeah. Very, very wise. Uh, I think kind of observations about what makes a place viable for living without, you know, uh, I, I guess not straddling either extreme. Uh, yeah. So that- well, I, I look at my neighborhood. I mean, and and I, I maybe have a. I mean, I'm, obviously, I'm a little biased towards my own, so I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take pushback on this. But you know, I, I sit in my house. Um, we paid two twenty two hundred twenty thousand for our house in Brainerd. Mm-hmm. This thing is a man. It was built in nineteen fourteen. I feel like it's a mansion. You know, I mean, it's a it's a it's like three thousand square foot house. It's really really nicely done in that you know, the yeah. way 1914 houses would be because mm-hmm. they're, I mean, it was just built solid, like hardwood floors. It's gorgeous. Um, we have a rental property on, on one side of us where it's, you know, been people cycling through there a lot. Very, I mean, you probably could have bought that house for 80,000 a while back. Directly across the street from us is a doctor's house. And I would guess if that went up for sale, it might be half a million. Mm. Um, so you have this, this neighborhood with, um, a lot of price points 
and a lot of uh, you know diversity of housing. If we just want to use a planner term, um, you know, and I think it has a more natural mix because that's what you would have found in any historic city. Um, you would have found a more natural mix like that. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned. Uh, so I currently live in a condo building we're renting uh, in, in Arlington here. And it's expensive. Like the, you know, one bedrooms in our neighborhood are between 2000 and 2500 per month for renting. Uh, right. But we found a nice little detached house in a nearby neighborhood. It's effectively still the same neighborhood. But I think it's one of these pre-World War II neighborhoods. And recently, you know, all the old houses starting to get demolished and you get the McMansions and stuff. But this one, we're now running another place. It's a very small two-bedroom, uh, kind of recently renovated two-bath place with a small yard. And it's, it's right next to it is a huge house. Um, and I, I was thinking to myself after reading your book, it's like, wow, it is so rare. And it's still expensive. It's still like three grand a month or something per the market rates. Uh, right. But it's so rare to even have that entry point for a detached house in that neighborhood. You know, the next level up, you're going to get a five-bedroom, five-bath house that'll sell for, you know, almost two million bucks. Right, right. And and you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. I I, I don't think historically that was true. You know, I I was in when I was in Italy uh, that very first time. I was there as part of this Rotary Exchange program. So it was a trip sponsored by the Rotary International Foundation. And we went to the, we were in a city, uh, Lecce, in southern Italy. And we were brought to essentially like the richest guy in town's house. Um, he was like the head of the bank or something. And he was going to have us over for lunch. And everybody at the Rotary thing was like, oh, this is a big deal. This guy's really important. You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We show up to his place. And, you know, it's got a, a gate around the, in the front and you go through, it opens up and you, you, we were in this, like their version of an SUV, which would be like a, a tiny, tiny car <laughs> for us, <laughs> you know, but for them, it was like, we were being shuttled to this place and we drove in and I'm looking, I'm like, this is my grandma's house, <laughs> my grandma's house in, in Northeast Brainerd, which, you know, has my grandma passed away in, in uh, 91, um, I think you could buy her house today for like $80,000. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm looking at it going, this is my grandma's house. It had a small little yard, fenced yard. It was a tiny little house. You went in and I mean, it had, it was, it was very nice. I mean, he had like really nice furniture. I mean, it was like high end Italian stuff. So, I mean, I, the guy was very rich. I mean, he had a lot of money, but he, he was living in a neighborhood that, you know, was, was clearly had a lot of different housing options. Yeah. Some of would have been poor single family detached. Some would have been wealthy, like condo units yeah. and then like everything in between. And we've just, we've, we've, we've really, by making our, I, I think the best way to think of this particular aspect is by making our development pattern into a monoculture. Right. So where you, you know, everything is like a static monoculture pod um we've really created this very strange dynamic of of housing pricing and scarcity at the same simultaneous and and then you overlay that with this weird way we financed the american dream and made it like the 
you know, the central part of our economy, um, we've done just like untold amount of damage to, to, to people's lives and to neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think everyone listening here should read the book and, uh, learn a lot more about those dynamics uh, that go into it and the types of damage that is being done um, like you mentioned there's one more question uh, kind of to wrap this up I meant to ask it earlier but I, I was just really curious to hear your perspective you mentioned in your book we that we frame a lot of things as investments but really they are luxuries because they will never be, they'll never pay for themselves in any, in any sort of way. Are there things that you have found that are considered luxuries universally, not just for any given point in time, but across time? Like you mentioned, op, you know, uh, very ornate opera halls or, or, you know, ornaments or big, uh, big central focal pieces of towns. Have you found any patterns to what is considered a luxury and what are things worth striving for uh, over time as a, you know, goal of what to do, what to do with our wealth? I, that's a really good question. I, I don't know if I've pondered it quite that way. Um, because l- let me let me give let me give the example, the opposite example that sure. I, I like to use. Um, I I. I we, th- we think a lot of times about like a road widening project as an investment. Um, and, you know, we just did this project here in my hometown where we took what was a, a little uh, shortcut that, you know, when I was a kid was a gravel road and then was like a two lane road around the south side of town. And we made it into a four lane uh, road. We put nine million dollars into this. Wow. And everyone talked about it as an investment. You know, we're making an investment. And the reality is. Um, you know, my city was 13,500 people at the end of World War II. It's 13,500 people today. Um, <laughs> Mega you know, growth there. It, it, <laughs> yeah, it will be 13,500 people probably a decade from now. Uh-huh. Um, you know, wh- what is us being able to drive around more? How is that an investment? You know, yeah. like, you know, like, okay, now more people can can drive around. Like, I don't get... You know, wh- where does that show up in our balance sheet as like actually we're making life better for people? We, we just now can drive quicker to Walmart basically is what it is. So that's not really an investment, even though we call it that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the idea of luxuries, you know, are there kind of universal luxuries? W- one of the spooky wisdom things that I started to grasp, and, and I think there's a lot more depth than what I have grasped to this. But just how past societies used to take their things that were aspirational and design them, position them, do them in a way that created more, just just wrung the most value they could out of them. Mm. Um, the courthouse here in my town is a, is a great example of this. I live on 4th Street. At the very end of 4th Street, so at the very south end, is the historic courthouse. Columns out front. Um, you know, classical architecture, symmetry, vertical windows, you know, magnificent building. That wasn't the first courthouse, though. The first courthouse is this little tiny brick building next to this one. And, and I've tried to piece together what 
they did. And, and I, I, this is the narrative that I would apply. And I, I think this is true. I think what they said is, we're going to reserve this significant spot on this very important street for our ultimate courthouse. Um, and we're going to build our first iteration of courthouse, a little tiny, you know, kind of makeshift shack building uh, here on this lesser lot that is in the vicinity. Um, but, and we're going to have that one for 20 years, 30 years, I think they had it, mm-hmm. uh, before we build the, the nice big one, you know, the, the thing that we're building up to. Um, but when we build that nice big one, we're going to put it at the end of the termination point of one of our important streets. We're going to do that so that, you know, everybody who has a business along the street or a house along the street is going to walk out and, and, and they're walking into town. Their view is going to essentially uh, be this gorgeous building that we've all put our money into building together. Um, the buildings are going to line up and frame that street so in a way that brings out the magnificence of this communal investment. And so, in a sense, the, the building was a luxury good. We could have done a, a, a pole barn and, and been able to meet in that. You know, sure. we, could have, we, we could have met in the town square or in the back of the saloon, probably, where they met, you know, in the, in the first iteration of the city. Um, but we decided that, you know, we're going to have this very nice marble courthouse where we could have judges meet and... Um, uh, you know, hold elections and, and do government things. And we're going to do this here and we're going to make the building itself an advertisement for ourselves to say, we're a, a successful society who have achieved something. And then for other people who may consider coming and joining us here that like, we're a stable, successful place that you can come and be part of our community. Is that a luxury? I think it absolutely is, yeah. you know, from a financial standpoint. Does it also have, in a spooky wisdom kind of way, many more dimensions to it? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I, I, I think it, I think it really, really does. And when you look at the modern courthouse we built, which is this, like, incoherent. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I can't even describe like the architecture of it. It's basically like a bunch of third graders said, well, put this on over here. And then, oh, yeah, let's do this over here, too. Like, oh, I would really like a, you know, I would really like this. And you know, how when you when you when you're in third grade and you design your house, yeah. you know, like you're laying down and you're like, well, I would like a bowling alley. And so your house winds up to be this like weird. Um, that's what it looks like, yeah. you know, surrounded by surrounded by parking lots and you know, that is also a luxury good in the sense that, um, you know, we didn't need it, but we built it because we thought it would make our lives better mm-hmm. and, and, and more fulfilled and, and serve functions for us that, that we wanted to collectively do. The problem with that building is it doesn't do any other intangible thing for us. Right. You know, it doesn't add any other value for us. And uh, I think that's something that, you know, our ancestors just would have done as a matter of course, probably because they were poor and they had to, as an ethic, make more use out of the things they did. Right. Yeah, it's it's tough, you know, and, and it's very possible that there was an ancient version of the third grader courthouse that just ceased to exist at some point because it was too hideous. Uh, <laughs> and what's left is simply the ornate courthouses that are still beautiful. Um 
Well, so. this is the thing about organic processes, yeah. and, and this is why you get to that spooky wisdom. Yeah. Um, I, I say, I, I, years ago, I, I wrote this book called Money Hall, and it was never published. I couldn't find... I couldn't find anyone who wanted to publish it. Mm -hmm. Partly it was it was not very good, <laughs> um, you know. But but the the central theme of it, you know, I was basically combining uh, Moneyball, you know, baseball analogies with city finance and and the Venn diagram of people who like, you know, baseball stats and city finance is a pretty small group. So no publisher was really interested. Um, but the the central aspect of this book that everybody was turned off by is I said winning for a, a community winning for a city is simply not losing yeah and the, the way that the way that translated in strong towns the the book that you and I are talking about is um you know I talked about a city needs to endure like like you know a successful city is one that will be here a year from now, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now. And you can measure city success by, like, do we continue to survive in all these ways? Well, the, 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 the reality of any organic process is that if it doesn't work, it gets punished by going away. Right. Right? So if you built the, uh, the third grade monstrosity of a public building back in BC 3000, <laughs> um, your city would have failed and you would have been punished and you you know your people would have died or been dislocated or they would have they would have you couldn't do stupid things cuz your place would would suffer yeah today because of our affluence because of the fact that we've like dismantled all these kind of painful feedback loops and really in a financial sense kind of gone for broke um, what we lack is that feedback that that um, that corrective mechanism. And so my city can build a ridiculous building like this and, you know, ostensibly not have any fallout or ramification from it, at least not in the near term, that would be a corrective on our behavior. And I, I think that is the, that is why we've gone from a system that did create this innate spooky wisdom to one that feels a, a lot and I'll just say dumber. Um, and I don't mean dumb as in there's not really super intelligent people doing this mm -hmm. because there is. But I think dumb in the sense that it's non-responsive. Right. You know? Yeah. It's, uh, I think that applies to so many areas of life. Uh, you know, in, in this case, Thing, uh, development of cities and towns and, and communities in my experience uh, the same is supplied to you know wisdom traditions and I, I think only the ones that add value have survived uh, until today um, but I'm right. sure we can I'm sure we can find many more examples Chuck, I really appreciate you coming on. I think we can go off on a many different uh, tangents. I think here. so. Maybe we should uh, do this again sometime. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, let's do. Let's definitely do a follow up. Uh, and I want to comb through this this recording and, and jump at the highlights. But I'm sure I've missed I've missed a whole bunch of things that would be really fascinating. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Hey, thank you. 